Good afternoon, and welcome to the Netflix Q3 2020 earnings interview. I'm Spencer Wong, VP of IR and Corporate Development. Joining me today are co-CEO Reed Hastings, co-CEO and Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos, CFO Spence Newman, and COO and Chief Product Officer Greg Peters. Our interviewer this quarter is Kanan Venkateshwar from Barclays. As a reminder, we'll be making forward-looking statements, and actual results may vary. With that, let me turn it to you, Kanan, for his first question. Thank you, Spencer. Um, and thanks, everybody, um, for joining us. Um, broadly, Spencer, if you could start, uh, Spence, if you could start with you, uh, given the subscriber numbers, you know, despite your cautioning us last quarter about growth, uh, all of us can't get, uh, you know, uh, can't help ourselves from getting enthusiastic every quarter about your subscriber trends. Um, but maybe it might be useful to just contextualize, uh, you know, the, growth, uh, the net ad number this quarter. Could you help us understand how the gross ad, uh, gross additions uh, trended but, uh, from Q2 to Q3? And uh, would you expect gross ads to come down a bit sequentially? And how much of this is on account of churn? So if you could just break down the quarterly sub-numbers a little bit and give us some color, that might be useful. Yeah, sure, Kanan. Thanks. So, so, uh, first, sort of stepping back, if you think about the, the Q3 subscriber numbers, it was really very much as expected for the quarter. Um, to, to look at Q3, the biggest impact was really the first half of the year and that giant pull forward in, in subscriber additions in the first half of the year with, with COVID. When we have that much pull forward, we, we expected and knew there'd be some level of slowdown and we, we tried to, uh, project it as best we could. But it's super, super difficult to forecast with perfect precision given all the unknowns and, and factors. So we actually came pretty close to land within 300,000 members on a member base of roughly 195 million. That's, that's pretty much forecast noise. And there's a number of ins and outs, but you know, the, the general underlying metrics, as you say, are very healthy. So retention remains, um, um, well, uh, you know, at very healthy levels, better than we were a year ago. Acquisition remains strong. So you're just seeing some kind of a natural kind of because of that pull forward effect, some slowdown. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that, you know, to measure our business is really not based on any single quarter of growth fluctuation. It's really about it should be measured in multi-quarter and multi-year trends. And so if you look at the past three quarters, uh, you know, year to date through Q3, we've grown by a little over 28 million members, which is more than we grew all of last year. So Super healthy growth and, and the underlying both top line and bottom line um, growth and retention trends in our business are healthy. And Kanan, maybe if I could just add, you know, with respect to more context on the subscriber trends, as Ben said, you know, we just really don't uh, overfocus on any 90-day period. And just to give you an example, if the quarter was 48 hours longer, we would have come in slightly above our guidance forecast. So, again, uh, as Ben's characterized it, I think really just forecast noise more than anything else. Got it. And uh, looks like um, organic ARPU and LATAM was particularly high. I know you had some price increases earlier in the year as a tax passed through. I mean, did that have any impact on growth? Because that was one of the regions which seems to have come in a bit lower. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, also if you could contextualize guidance for next year, you did point out that paid net ads uh, would be, uh, will be down next year, first half, at least based on your expectations. Uh, so how are you thinking about the impact of pull forward um, while modeling, uh, you know, next year's numbers. If you could just give us some color around that. might help us uh, understand it a bit better. Greg, uh, maybe you want to take the LATAM price question, and then uh, I'll take the uh, next year and then pass it over to Spence. 
Yeah, sounds good. And I think, Kanan, it's, it's, again, when it's easy to over-rotate on what we're seeing specifically quarter to quarter. And if you look at sort of the nine months, um, we've seen five million, you know, uh, paid net ads in land down, which is a very healthy growth for us on that period. So I wouldn't overread anything um, specifically. And it's more, I think, the pull forward effect. And then over to you, Reid. You know, we've been doing um, high 20s uh, net ads per year for four years. Um, and this year, you know, on guidance will be 34 million. So we'll set all kinds of new records this year. Um, so the pull forward into next year is relatively modest. You know, it's sort of that five or six million um, delta, as opposed to the second half of this year, again, where the pull forward effect from the first half is very strong. So, you know, it's probably a little bit of the effect in Q1 um, from the pull forward, uh, maybe a little bit less in Q2, but it'll it'll wash out. Um, you know, it's not a permanent or long term. So I, I think in terms of modeling it, there's the underlying quality of the service. You know, how many hours do we generate? How much word of mouth? And that's improving at some, you know, relatively steady rate. And then our growth sort of seesaws around that number, depending on the particular conditions going on, you know, in that quarter. But year after year, it's fundamentally followed that improvement in the service uh, growth curve. Uh, Spence? Uh, I think you I think you both hit on most of it. I, I, w- I would just emphasize that in the letter, Kanan, we were really talking mostly about the year-over-year comparison for the first half of 21 versus the first half of 20, and that's because of the dynamic that Reed was mentioning. If you look at the first half of this year, again, we grew by 26 million members in the first two quarters of 2020. That's more than twice the level of growth we had in 2019. So, again, we're just um, – we're sort of growing through that, you know, big acceleration in our member base. So we shouldn't expect year over year first half to be comparable. Just try to temper that enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Um, So I guess, you know, one component which can help us, uh, you know, understand this a little bit better, maybe the engagement levels. Uh, And obviously because of uh, the work from home environment, there was an engagement lift across the board. on streaming services in general. But in some ways, you know, you guys are able to benefit from almost a, uh, a pure experiment in some ways as different countries reopen at different times, and you're able to see what that does to engagement levels. So as this process uh, plays out around the world, is there any structural lift in engagement you guys have seen in markets that have opened up versus markets that may still not be open? And how much of a tailwind could that be structurally longer term or, you know, how much of that could become a tough comp next year? You know, we do look at some of this, but we try not to get overly focused on the COVID effects because uh, they're very one time in nature. Um, and by and large now, engagement, churn, all of those metrics are like we would have expected from a year ago. Um, so um, think of that as a, a minor background effect. And, you know, there was the temporary learning when there's no sports, but it's like, well, it's not really that interesting a finding because it's just not relevant to the world. Now we're back in a world with, you know, partial sports um, and it's fine and we're growing. So, again, you know, we compete so broadly. We compete for time against, you know, TikTok and YouTube as well as HBO, as well as Fortnite. So 
really the the limiter for us is you know what's the quality of our service um how often how many nights do you say oh my god i want to go to netflix and and you know watch the next show and Ted, I guess from, uh, you know, one of the comments um, uh, in the release was the goal of shooting 150 productions by year end. Um, yeah. So how does that compare to what your initial plans may have been? Because the free cash flow number this quarter is really strong, which uh, which tells me that there's probably a lot more content you were initially planning uh, versus what's happening. So if you could just give us some color around the cadence. Yeah, like we pointed out, since the COVID shutdowns, we've completed production on over 50 productions, and we expect another 150 before the year's over. So um, all that, that ramp up uh, puts us back to nearly fully operational in most parts of the world. Uh, those productions may go a little slower uh, than they than we had planned, uh, but materially we are back in you know we're back in business and production in most places of the world, including in North America that have come on slower. So we've got um, so I think we'll be we're looking at the twenty the twenty one slate. Uh, everything that we forecast for twenty one, we expect to hit in twenty one, uh, with a few minor exceptions and some maybe a little more back weighted than they than we had planned for earlier last year. Uh, but we planted it all coming out. Um, and I think the thing that we've really been uh, amazed by has been the uh, adaptivity of our production communities uh, to step up to the plate in these new COVID protocols and get and get the work done in such an incredible way uh, and in so safely. Uh, we've had a couple of shutdowns, and I really think that we're in a place right now where we should expect that to happen, uh, that we'll have – production shut down, and the art of it is how quickly and safely can you reopen. And we've been going through that um, in different parts of the world um, every day. But but right now I'd say that we're back to near steady state in physical production. Got it. Um, and, Greg, from your perspective, when you think about the price increase decision, um, recently I think there was a price increase in Canada and Australia. Um, is this based more on um, – some kind of an algorithm around content release slate and subscriber momentum, or is this based more on the strategic goal of where you want to be with respect to ARPOs over a given time frame? Uh, so how should we think about, um, you know, the cadence of price increases going forward, given that productions are restarting now? Yeah, no, no, no magic algorithm, but, the, you know, the core model we have is, you know, and what we think really our responsibility and our job is, is to take the money that our members give us uh, every month and invest that, as judiciously, as smartly as we can and creating, you know, new amazing stories. Uh, you know, we've got, you know, titles that are coming out across an increasing range of genres, you know, amazing movies like Old Guard and Extraction and, you know, more animation like Over the Moon and Willoughby's and Klaus. And so just, you know, basically delivering more value, um, you know, for our members, better product experiences. And if we do that well, and we seek to, you know, basically every day be better about pretty much every component of how we're investing that and make that efficiency and that effectiveness better, you know, we will deliver more value to our members and we'll occasionally go back uh, and ask those members to pay a little bit more to keep that virtuous cycle of investment and value creation going. And as we said before, you know, we look at every country independently. So, that, so instead of an algorithm, you know, we're just basically assessing, okay, how many new popular titles have we delivered? What are local language originals in that particular country looking like? What's the slate that's coming looking like? What are the fundamental metrics, right? Engagement and churn, what do those look like? And then we just, we do an assessment, you know, and we say, are, are we, do we believe that we're really delivering more value to our members? Um, and if so, do we think, you know, it's the right time to go back and ask them to pay a bit more so we can again keep that 
cycle going. I, and I think the one other important thing to note here are something, you know, North Star that we hold close to our heart in this whole process is we think that we are just incredible entertainment value. And we very much want to remain an incredible value as we continue to improve the service and grow. And uh, now that you're in a you know, more uh, normal pricing environment um, and, you know, some of the metrics that you mentioned just now in terms of engagement levels and churn and so on, I mean, when you analyze different markets, is there room for the recent price increases in a couple of markets to expand um, as we go forward um, in the next, over the next few quarters? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm not, I won't comment or speculate on any specific changes, but, you know, that basic model that we just described, if we continue to do a great job at investing and we feel like there's ample opportunity to deliver more value and, you know, you heard from Ted the sort of, you know, the, the, the number of original productions that we're doing increasing even under these conditions, that number. And if we do that, you know, then we feel like there is that opportunity to occasionally go back and then ask, um, for members where we've delivered that that extra value in that in those countries to pay a little bit more. Got it. And in the U.S., I mean, you've also done away with the free tier um, recently, and I think U.S. is one of the last markets where where you've done this. Uh, is this because most of the new additions in the U.S. are now people who already have been subscribers in the past? I mean, uh, could you help us understand, you know, the decision to walk away from uh, the free tier in the U.S.? Yeah, like most things that we do, we're, you know, we're, we're constantly assessing and testing and trying to understand, you know, what's working, what's working best, how do we improve? And we do that with our marketing and promotion tactics as well. What are the most effective ways to introduce Netflix to people in different countries around the world? And based on that testing and that actual performance, we've, you know, shifted those tactics, as you note, in many, many countries, including the United States. But, you know, we also seek to innovate and come up with, you know, what are new ways that we can, you know, use to introduce Netflix to new members. And so uh, an idea that we're, we're, we're excited about and we'll see how it goes. But we're, we think that giving everyone in a country access to Netflix for free for a weekend could be a great way to expose a bunch of new people to the amazing stories that we have, um, the service, how the service works, really create an event and hopefully get a bunch of, um, of those folks to sign up. So we're going to try that in India. Uh, and we'll see how that goes. And that's just an example of the kind of innovation that we um, seek to do in this space. That's interesting. So I guess uh, that dovetails um, into a question I had for Ted, which is more around some of the, the shows that have been licensed or reverse licensed, if I can use that term, to cable networks as well as services like Pluto. And obviously some of these are not your productions. They're owned by somebody else. But um, – is this a bigger opportunity in general with your originals and, uh, you know, the opportunity to stream Netflix for free, either as an event or even as a starting tier um, as a mainstream product with your licensed uh, content I must, or your legacy content, which may not be as productive anymore with your existing base? Is that something that you're willing to explore uh, in a bigger way? Yeah, I think we're looking, we're always looking at new different ways for people to get a sample of the content that everyone's talking about, uh, including trying the service out, uh, here and there in different ways. I think licensing our content to other people, you know, our, the mo- mostly I think it's helpful for us to keep our original content mm-hmm. on Netflix so people understand the value proposition of Netflix. Uh, and we have seen, uh, our ability to grow a show that was on another network or a smaller, uh, outlet, 
uh, pretty meaningfully, uh, but we've not necessarily seen it the other way around when we've experimented in the past with things like actually with Narcos when we licensed it uh, to Univision in the past uh, to try to, you know, try to uh, get people to try to sample the show. We don't own that show. Gamont does. And uh, the deal that they did uh, was something uh, that I'm, It'd be interesting to see how if it lifts the awareness and interest in Narcos, but uh, it's on a relatively small platform relative to Netflix. Got it. Um, and read from your perspective, um, there have been, uh, um, and I guess, Ted, this is for you as well, but there have been a bunch of management changes recently uh, or over the course of the last year, starting with Spence, of course, but there have been changes in marketing, in the marketing leadership and uh, recently on the content side. Um, and the voluntary churn, like you point out in your book, I think, voluntary churn at Netflix is really low compared to other organizations. So it feels a lot more deliberate in some of these choices that you're making. So could you help us think through what drove these changes, and are these changes more or less done, and organizationally, where are you right now? Well, I could talk to you on the, one of the major changes that we're really excited about, which is uh, I was uh, restructured the content team to be more like our film team and more like our animation team and have one global organization. Uh, and to run that, I tapped Bella Bajaria, who's been with Netflix for a long time, uh, has came in to start our unscripted uh, group, uh, brought in that team from scratch, and they developed this incredible unscripted outlet, um, a slate that we have today. Uh, moved over to our local language original team, usually successful. These are two areas of the business that are going to grow three or four times over the next three to five years. Uh, so I thought that she was really well suited to take on that organization. Um, and she, and in that English language scripted series business, she joined us from Paramount, or from Universal Television, where she was the president, uh, and had brought us such shows as Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Master of None. Uh, and she also orchestrated the to bring you on as a Netflix original and delivered that first great season of Witcher. So I think Bella is going to be phenomenal uh, running that group. And then there's some changes after that, that whenever you put new change at the top, there's some downstream effects as well. And come on to your broader question. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we're always trying to uh, broaden our talent as we take on bigger challenges. So, uh, you know, Greg took on head of product about, uh, three or four years ago. Um, Spence CFO about a year and a half ago. Spencer, um, IR, you know, about eight years ago. Um, and they all are, you know, have grown into those roles. But, you know, it's a normal model. No one gets to keep the job for free. You know, you gotta earn it every year, uh, which is intensely challenging and we all love that part of it. And uh, Spence, my next question may make you uh, squirm a little bit, but um, read last month in an interview, I think you said something that at least I hadn't realized was essentially a keeper test move, which was a change in CFO last year. And you mentioned it was deliberate and you needed an entertainment company CFO, um, and therefore it was time for a change. So to make a change at that level, uh, to deliberately seek a CFO more attuned to the to you know what an entertainment company looks like, it seems like a phase shift in how you think about the company, about what Netflix today is versus maybe a decade ago. Is that the right way to think about, you know, uh, or interpret that comment? Yeah, I think so broadly. I mean, we've been moving towards, you know, being an entertainment company for many years. Um, and our former CFO, David Wells, is an extraordinary human being and a great CFO. And we offered him the chance to move to L.A. and to really lean into that. 
um, and he demurred. Um, and, you know, he had done so well as a generalist and tech CEO, CFO. He wanted to stay with that. Um, and then we felt super fortunate to recruit uh, Spence Newman, who's been like the dream CFO for Netflix. So it like could not be better. And uh, so super fortunate. That's great. I, I, I thought I was going to get a keeper test right here. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been enough for you to be alive. And, you know, one of the things, I guess, uh, which has surprised me over the course of the last year is uh, the way, um, you know, most of you have spoken about the impact of content on growth. Um, right. And I think this started around Q2 of last year when there was a big miss. And one of the reasons attributed was the content slate at that point. And now we increasingly talk about, you know, comps versus last year when you have a big show like Stranger Things. I would have expected the opposite, to be honest. I mean, when you are 200 million subs and when the content slate is so big, um, content, singular pieces of content should, in theory, become smaller parts of overall consumption. But seems like it's starting to have a bigger impact. Could you help us think through um, the content skew in consumption? Is is that skew more or less over time? And, you know, why is that seemingly having a bigger effect, or is that just me reading too much into some of these comments? It's a, just a little bit of math. So uh, let's say there's a 5% variation because of content, you know, on the margin. Mm-hmm. And 5% used to be a small part of the growth. So then you really didn't notice it that much. And now 5% might be half of the annual subscriber growth, so you notice it much more. And I don't think it's particularly changed. We are a little more sensitive to it. Again, on the growth, remember that if you have a theatrical business, you have up year, down year, you know, the variation is in revenue. In our case, the revenue is going up and up and up. But, you know, there's a little bit of wobble in that direction. So, you know, I think that's what's happening. I don't think it's particularly more sensitive. Uh, like you say, we've got lots of hits and, you know, we have the, you know, the crown coming up and kind of big returning series with Witcher coming up. So, you know, there's a lot of big things coming. Got it. And so it's fair to say, I guess, that when you have a show like The Crown or The Witcher or Stranger Things coming on, every year that goes by, the impact of, uh, you know, these shows to overall growth on a normalized basis, keeps coming down, but on an absolute basis, it still has an impact. So is that basically the way to read um, some of these comments? Correct. And because the growth rate's been, you know, steady, let's call that 30 million a year, round numbers, um, a percentage on the base is a bigger fraction of that, so you you feel it more. So from a practical standpoint as investors, it's a it's a bigger deal. But remember, it's it's variations in the growth. And the stunning thing is just big picture – outside of COVID, how steady the growth has been year after year after year. Back to this, the underlying growth model is like diffusion of word of mouth. Netflix is a better way to go. Mm -hmm. And then you capture a little more of that when you have a big show. And then you have a, you know, a shadow under that. So think of it as like a big general diffused model. And then you're just seeing little surface variations that are, are happening. Got it. And then in terms of, you know, the total number of titles, if I have this right, uh, I think the total number of shows that you have on Netflix today is actually significantly lower than what you had uh, when Netflix started streaming, um, you know, uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, First of all, I don't know if that's true. I mean, if that is true, then 
is that deliberate and how do you determine optimum volume? I guess that's the broader question. How much is too much? It, it is true that there's less because in the earlier days of Netflix, remember, we were trying to figure out the, uh, what we could stream. And we were licensing in bulk and volume uh, just a lot of content just to see what worked well. Uh, versus today, where we're much more deliberate about the programming. Uh, and we really don't focus that much on the title count. Remember, in the early days of streaming, everyone was – that was the – the marketing war was how many titles you had, but it turns out that doesn't isn't that meaningful if people don't watch them. So what we've really done is concentrated on the titles that have a lot of impact and can aggregate big audiences and move the business forward and add a lot of value for our members. So we really don't focus on the title count, uh, but you are correct. It's significantly lower than it was when we first started streaming, you know, uh, I'd say, you know, more 10 years ago where we used to license uh, an entire library of 800 films from somebody, uh, and nobody watched any of them. So it's really not a, a, a chase for how many titles, but are these the titles you can't live without? Got it. And um, I guess, Ted, in one of your recent uh, interviews, uh, you indicated that the goal was to scale up to six animated feature films a year. And if I'm not wrong, I think you guys are already doing more movies than the top five Hollywood studios put together. So when you think about that kind of scale to build content, um, uh, is is quality a trade-off? I mean, how do you maintain that balance between, you know, building scale on originals versus quality? I, I'll, I'll tell you, the thing that we've been working on and trying and doing, uh, if you think about how many more original series we produce today than we used to and how many more uh, we're producing relative to everybody else in the, in the industry around, and around the world, uh, and yet last year we had 160 Emmy nominations for our television slate, which is the most honored single season of television in the history of the Emmys. Um, that kind of quality attracts more quality. Uh, we're doing that today in how we're building up our animation slate. Uh, last year, we released um, uh, two feature films that were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Uh, both were pretty popular. Klaus was extremely popular, also won the BAFTA Award for Best Animated Feature and six Annie Awards, which is uh, a celebration by from animators uh, of the best work of the year. And that kind of quality keeps attracting more quality. So we're deep into our 21, 22, 23 animation slate working with some of the greatest animators in the world, uh, like Chris Nee and uh, Jorge Gutierrez, uh, 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 Nora Toomey, uh, Chris, uh, Chris Williams, Alex Wu, all making the projects that they've been dying to make and making them at Netflix. So we're really excited about it. We think that there's no quality trade-off for quantity, uh, and we think that there's a big appetite for film and a big appetite for animated features at Netflix. Got it. And Greg, if I could switch to a slightly different topic, um, recently there have been headlines around the Google Play Store changes in uh, payment terms, especially for in-app purchases. And obviously this has been a broader discussion with the dispute between HBO, Peacock, Roku, and so on. And we touched on it uh, last quarter a little bit. But if you could help us think about um, uh, not just the near-term impact of the Google move, but also bigger, uh, longer-term issues. I mean, how do you plan to deal with aggregators? Is there... Is this becoming a bigger deal uh, than it used to be in the past? Um, and so, you know, how would you expect to cope with some of these issues going forward on the pricing front? Sure. Um, on the Google Play Store specifically, I, you know, I think you, you know, we won't, I won't comment on the, the details of any given partnership, but you can look at our position on iOS where for, you know, quite some time we've been signing up uh, new members on those devices through the mobile browser 
using our own payment method. Um, we're not dependent on the App Store for discovery. We're not dependent on the App Store for payment. And we've seen steady, solid growth through that channel. So it's been quite effective, uh, you know, regardless. So I think that's, you know, relevant to note when you think about sort of that dynamic. And then, you know, to your point, look, I mean, you know, the, um, the world is shifting to, to streaming and to Internet TV. And a bunch of new players are coming in. And so I think, you know, the dynamics between those relationships, uh, aggregators and device manufacturers and new streaming services are are being worked out. But, you know, we have been in this business for quite some time and we've invested in, you know, relationships with device manufacturers and platform owners for, you know, over a decade. And we really, really focused on making this, you know, a, a positive experience for them, adding more value to their devices because we're there, um, making it, you know, great for us because we get to use those devices to access um, new consumers around the world and making it great for the people that purchase those devices because they have these incredible experiences, you know, with Netflix and the amazing stories that we tell on those devices. And I just don't, I don't see any significant change in that sort of positive model. We're going to keep investing in it. We have whole teams who basically just do nothing but make it great for our device manufacturers to take our technology on and deliver then great experiences to the consumers who buy those devices. Got it. Um, and Greg, I think last quarter, one of the things you had mentioned was the promotional impact of uh, Netflix itself. Like instead of spending on marketing, um, you could use Netflix itself and the scale of Netflix as a promotional tool um, going forward. And I think the folklore, and I don't know where this data came from, but it's quoted all over the place, is that 75% of your viewing comes from the first page um, in terms of your recommendations. I don't know if that's still if that number is true at all, but would be great to get some context around uh, how much of content consumption is actually driven by the recommendations uh, that you put up on the screen versus other sources, potentially. Yeah, a, a very significant majority is driven by the recommendations that we present. And so I think to your point, you know, the model that we're working with is that millions of people, millions of our members show up every day to our applications, our interfaces, looking for something great to watch. And so we really have a tremendous opportunity to, you know, to, to fulfill that interest and fulfill that demand. And if we do a good job at, you know, through the recommendations, the titles that we select, how we present those titles in a compelling way of giving, um, you know, each of those members something satisfying in that moment, then they're happy, they're fulfilled. And that means the next night, when they're thinking about, like, what do they want to watch or how do they want to be entertained? And you think about the wealth of options that, that are available to them that sort of read went through. But if we've done a good job the previous night, they're going to turn to us again. And we have an opportunity to sort of fulfill again and to sort of, you know, keep that positive feedback process. And so we're, we're really deeply invested in that. We have, you know, hundreds of people who wake up every day and sort of devote their entire professional existence to making every aspect of that work better and better and better. We know we're going to be doing that for decades to come, which is super exciting. Yeah. And I guess this also means that, you know, as you evolve this process, uh, some of the KPIs internally that you measure uh, performance on also changes over time. And I think, Reed, um, in your book, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned an interaction with uh, your chief marketing officer at the, uh, at the point. I think in, this was in 2016 where she pushed back against customer signups being used for measuring performance uh, of the marketing team um, instead of retention. And I think ultimately you guys went with retention. But over time, a number of these KPIs seem to have shifted internally. Uh, so could you help us understand how you measure performance uh, 
to the extent uh, you know you're comfortable doing this how do you measure performance for the content team has this focus shifted from origination to retention uh, is that a bigger part of how you think about the business broadly uh, or yeah, or even features such as engagement for example for at least the last 5 years um we've realized there are no gimmicks there are no techniques it's fundamentally about member satisfaction and if we please you on a wednesday night you're more likely to come back on a thursday night so again you can juice a given title uh, if you wanted to um but you're going to pay for it downstream you know because not everybody got the best title for them or you can juice signups or you can juice any particular metric but it it's all just very distorting and the fundamental for us is member joy which we look at how much of your viewing time do you choose to spend with netflix uh how many repeat days what's retention all of those aspects and so we're really focused on the fundamentals of that pleasing and what does seem to please our members and that's you know how we grow now we augment that with a lot of conversation because we want our titles to be the most talked about titles in every nation because you know when you watch Enola Holmes and then like you see this you know all these activations that we're doing in London uh you know with Enola Holmes statues you know it like locks in it's like something fun to really talk about and it you know is a great top spin on a fundamentally great piece of content but that interplay um that we use across product content it's how we do budgeting decisions how much do we want to spend in each area is driven fundamentally by our guess on member satisfaction you know in each country and and how that works and ted you've um thought a lot about this so let, let me turn it over to you yeah i would I agree with you i mean i think one of the things going back to what greg said you know it's not unusual for a hollywood studio to spend 50 70 sometimes 100% of the production budget of a film in marketing to get people out to the box office on opening weekend mm-hmm. now we do uh, a fraction of that for our advertise in terms of paid advertising for our films and yet we're getting 70 80 100 million folks turning out to watch those movies in its first 28 days which is you know, like a billion dollar box office in terms of uh cultural impact. So when I look at that and I think that's the uh, the enormous promise of the scale and the uh the recommendation engine the value of the recommendation on Netflix to make sure you have a great experience and come back looking for the next one. And our and primarily what we're trying to do in our marketing is get people to talk about those things that they're watching. Uh and got to get it into the conversation, get it into the zeitgeist that the watching, the heavy lifting of the watching is being handled by the by the recommendation and the presentations on Netflix on that first page you talked about earlier. So, but what we could do is do really creative marketing, uh really uh, clever events uh to activate uh the fan base and to excite the fan base so that when they're talking about a movie, they're talking about a Netflix movie. And when they're talking about a TV show, they're talking about a Netflix TV show. And that's the thing that we're, you know, building toward every day. Got it. And I guess um in terms of uh, the content itself that I mean there's probably uh, a lot of opportunity right now um given the shutdown and theatrical and you know the slow reopenings there there's a lot of content in the pipeline and the window between movie releases next year is significantly smaller than what it was last year already yeah. so if this gets pushed out another quarter potentially a lot of movies would probably come to you or Amazon or somebody else 
So how are you thinking about that pipeline of content as you go into next year? Is that a big opportunity in terms of content acquisition? Um, it's pretty short-term opportunistic. There's, there will be some things. Reed mentioned Anola Homes is one that we bought uh, that would have gone theatrical. Uh, that turned out to be a nice hit for us. Um, um, and then we just released the trials of the Chicago 7 that we picked up from Paramount under similar conditions, uh, which is great. Uh, we have to remember, we have a very healthy pipeline of films uh, coming out already in the rest of this year and next and 22. Uh, and But we're looking at all of them and we'll be at the table. But I would look at it as a fairly short-term opportunity while the studios um, refigure how they're going to release films. In different parts of the world, uh, this past week in Japan, uh, theaters reopened uh, to 100% with 100% capacity. Mm-hmm. So I think they're looking at the impact of that around the world and how long uh, they're going to have to make new plans and what are they going to do with their 21 and 22 films uh, if they you know, are, are sitting on their 20 films. So um, I do think there'll be some short opportunities. We'll pick up some, not all, uh, but we'll certainly be in the mix. Got it. And in terms of, you know, some of these newer opportunities, um, is this also uh, potentially a, a way for new business models to open up? I mean, there's also been a lot of experimentation by the likes of Disney um, on the pivot side as well as, you know, releasing some of their movies directly to consumers on streaming. Uh, but And live music, we've seen a lot more of this as well. So do some of these opportunities during COVID also open up um, potentially new avenues for monetization from your perspective as well? Uh, look, I, I think what's been happening with consu- consumers' desire to see films at home has been growing, and we've been satisfying it. And I think um, that was kind of a natural migration that was already happening, that this may have accelerated in mm-hmm. some dimensions. Uh, but I think at some point theaters are going to reopen and people are going to go back out to the theaters. I hope so. Like I said, I'm a fan of doing it myself. Uh, and I do think people kind of crave the the social interaction to go out and see a film with an audience sometimes. Uh, I don't doubt that that's going to come back in some capacity. So I wouldn't look at this being that radical a change. I just think it'd be, it's probably an accelerated change that was, may have already been in the works. We have time for one more question, uh, Kanan. Got it. Um, Suspense, I guess, uh, you know, uh, the mandatory free cash flow question that we have to get to now that you have potentially $2 billion in free cash flow uh, over the course of this year. And obviously, I mean, there's a lot of lumpiness in this, just given the cadence of content production. But broadly, when you think about, uh, you know, maybe a three-year, four-year kind of a horizon, you are getting to a point where uh, cash flow use uh, is going to be more than just about content. How are you thinking about your capital structure um, as you get closer to this break-even point? What's the use of cash um, once you turn free cash flow positive? Yeah, sure. Well, the, the free thanks, Khan. The free cash flow story is a uh, is an exciting one for us right now. As you can see, the free cash flow profile is improving. Obviously, this year was a bit short-term with not just improving um, profitability, but also the reduction in, in content spend. But as we look forward to 2021 already. We guided to free cash flow, negative free cash flow, negative a billion to break even. So vastly improved from our peak negative free cash flow in 2019. We're not yet sustainably free cash flow positive or ready to call that, but we're rapidly closing in. And and given the the more than $8 billion of cash on the balance sheet, we are at a point where at least um, you could probably pretty safely say that we can self-finance our growth Mm -hmm. without needing to access the capital markets. But but we're still um, we're still uh, obviously based on our guidance 
probably a couple years away, uh, if, at least from sustainably being free cash flow positive. So it's probably a little too early to call our long-term capital allocation approach other than to say that you can trust that we're going to be, we're going to remain disciplined um, and we're going to uh, take an approach that we, we believe will maximize the long-term value for our shareholders. So, so more to come on that front. Got it. Thank you so much. Thanks all for the time today. Um, and hopefully we'll chat again next quarter. The, the big pictures um, that you uh, referred to there, you know, next time we get together, we should be over 200 million members, you know, completing a year of 34 million all-time record, uh, free cash flow positive, got an amazing content technology and marketing engine humming. So uh, really looking forward to next year. Thank you so much, Rick.